0: Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Proverbs 17, verse 17. These are the words of God. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Would you say that with me, church? A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Let's do it one more time. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Uh, We've been giving our attention uh, over the past week and then this week uh, to the Proverbs and particularly what they teach concerning friendship. Uh, This is a, a huge topic, a huge issue because obviously, we all have friendships or we all desire friendships and we want them to be godly ones. Um, but uh, in last week's message, we covered two crucial ideas and I just want to remind you of those as we roll into this week. The first being what it looks like to be a good friend. Uh, And then the second being what we're looking for in a good friend. Of course, um, all of these attributes, no matter what we're talking about, good friend or what we're looking for in a good friend, are are clearly going to overlap in every way. But uh, I kind of highlighted some specific ones based on what we're supposed to do and what we're expecting of other people. So uh, what it means to be a good friend is to have a life that is marked by loyalty, a life marked by love and a life that is marked by long-suffering or patience with others. Um, To the second, the friend, we're looking for. uh, We are looking for someone who is wise. We are looking for someone who is temperate. We are looking for those who are righteous. And what I mean by that is righteous in the correct sense. How many of you know that we're not looking for perfect people? Yeah, everybody's hand went up there. They're like... I know that, right? We're not looking for perfect people, what we are looking for, and this is not to rule out the the reality that we can befriend um, the world. We can not, um, so Jesus talks about friendship with the world, being enmity with God. I'm not talking about uh, being a part of the world. I'm not talking about embracing the world's systems. I'm talking about the fact that we all should and do have friends that do not submit to King Jesus, and we are, uh, we are in many ways, being uh, ministers to them. We are being an example to them. Uh, but the idea here is that if we are looking for a friend who is righteous, we're looking for people not that are perfect, but instead that are trusting in their righteousness by faith. That's that's what we're looking for in friends. Uh, this, of course, led us to, to understand the greatest display of friendship, John chapter 15, verse 13. It'll be, be on the screen here. Uh, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than uh, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, I made a clear distinction last week uh, of what this is actually talking about. It's really important. We're all appreciative of people who have given their lives for us and lay down their lives for us. But what Jesus is communicating very clearly is that no greater love has anyone than this. That Jesus Christ died on a cross so that we might be his friend. Amen that is the greatest love. Now, I expanded that because uh, I expanded that to move to uh, a quote from CS Lewis that I believe captures the love aspect of friendship very well. Lewis said this, he said love is not an affectionate feeling. Again, love will come with affectionate feeling, but that's something that it produces, not what it is. Love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. That's what we should be wanting for all of our friends. That's what we should be looking in for in friendships. That they want uh, what is best for us. Today, we're going to take another, uh, we're going to take another step forward, and we're going to see what friendship looks like in action. This is just where I wasn't able to get last week, and so I expanded on it a bit. And I'm excited about what these points will will help us uh, learn, what, uh, how they'll help us grow. Um, we've looked at it in theory, now we're going to look at it as it plays out. And with that, we'll examine some of the threats that can ruin friendships. How many of you have ever had a, a friendship that's been ruined? How many of you are lying to me right now? The rest of you, yes, that's the way it goes, right? The, the final section of what causes friendships to break down is extremely important, important to me. And so I hope that the words that I share with you will be valuable to you. Uh, in how you love people, whether they're a friend or not, because that's the goal: love God, love people, right? I mean, we even have corny songs that say that. <laughs> okay, so what does friendship look like in act? Don't get me started on Christian music; it won't go well. What what friendship looks like in action? Uh, Proverbs chapter fourteen, verses twenty and twenty-one: The poor is hated by every, uh, even by his neighbor, uh, but those who love the rich are many. Duh, <laughs> right? Duh. But this is, this is where it turns the corner, right? This is the opposite. One who despises his neighbor actually is sinning. Gulp. One who despises his neighbor sins, but one who is gracious to the poor is blessed. Do you see the connection there? It's the neighbor and the poor. They are synonymous in this verse. In our discussion on friendship, we've already uh, connected a few important people groups. Uh, those people groups, uh, according to ancient literature, according to the ancient context, are a neighbor and a friend, right? The neighbor is the pool from which a friend is drawn. That's how it works in, in, uh, in the past. They didn't have Facebook, lucky for them. So neighbors and friends are implicitly connected, and we just saw that a neighbor and the poor are implicitly connected. We also learned that friendships were multi-generational, that is that we're not supposed to forsake the friend of our family, and that a friend ultimately is intended to become a brother or a sister in arms. This is a birthing process. This is something that that happens. A friend becomes a brother uh, to us that is born for adversity. That's what we read at the outset. So now what we have is actually a neighbor, a neighbor who is a multi-generational friend, and a neighbor who goes through a birthing process that enables them to face adversity with us. We all need those people. No doubt this is why friendship is so important to all of us. Um, It will always be that way. This is also why I stress that Lone Ranger Christianity is not a thing. You should not do this. We are not and never will be in this fight alone. And if we try to do it, we're going to get ourselves killed. right? Nobody goes out onto the battlefield alone. Nobody ventures out alone. We've got to be careful on this. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 9 through 12 capture this. Well, it'll be on the screen as well. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? An electric blanket. Um, And if one, (laughs) it's a fact, and if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands. Is not quickly torn apart. So today we're going to see that that sample of humanity that God gave us, our neighbor, as G.K. Chesterton pointed out, is also to be uh, loved impartially. If I have the time at the end, I want to talk about partiality and impartiality, but but we'll see where it goes. Uh, this is to say that our neighbor, our friend, our brother is to be relo- is to be loved regardless of their status in this life. Okay, whether that's um, whether that's their economic status, their their social status, whatever it is, we are to love them. We're not to love them more. We are not to love them less. We are to love them equally with other people. Before anybody worries about this, I'm not advocating for some modern social justice nonsense. Um, I'm not presenting a political platform at all. Sometimes this gets confused in the church today. Uh, All that I am talking about is genuine, biblical, God-ordained care for all people, especially the least of these. That sounds crazy, but God has called us to love people, and there is something that we're supposed to do for those who are poor, those who are broken. So, again, the recap the scripture not only connects a friend with a neighbor who ultimately becomes a brother or sister in arms, but all of this is to happen regardless of position in life. And this sets the stage for friendship in action. This is what sets the stage for it. So, one of the best stories that I think we can find with respect to this is the story of the Good Samaritan. I am not going to have all of this on the screen, so you get to open your Bibles now. So, I'll wait. Matthew, or Luke chapter 10. I'll wait. I'm watching, too. I'm watching. You got it? Good. Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. First person there reads it out. No, I'm just messing with you. Anyway, <laughs> like, I hate this guy. Anyway, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Just take a pause for a second. I love the fact that Jesus is not intimidated by our renderings of the scripture. He's not intimidated by our understanding. He actually wants to know it, and here's why he wants to know it. Because he can't correct it unless he knows it. He has to see what you actually think. As a pastor, as a leader, and you as any kind of disciple maker, you need to not be so intimidated by how people read the text of Scripture. Let them read it. Let them render it in a really janky way. It doesn't really matter. What you have to do is have the wisdom to know what is right so that you can help correct it. Okay? So let me give you an example. The message It's janky. Just throw it away, okay? So get back to a real Bible and you'll be fine. But it's okay. Let people render things the way they render it. But then you can step in. So Jesus does this exact same thing. What's written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? No intimidation at all. So the lawyer, the expert in the law, answers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself look at what Jesus responds with. This is fascinating to me. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. Huh. Did Jesus just say he can earn his way to heaven? No. Jesus said this is what faith looks like. Remember, faith is a believing loyalty. Faith is trust and that is all. And when you believe in Jesus, when you believe in what he says, what will you do as an expression of your faith? You will love God, and you will love people. That is not earning you anything. That's actually the evidence that you trust. You see it? So Jesus says to this guy, he says, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And then there's this word in the Bible, but, but. And this lawyer, just like every lawyer, should have shut up at this point, right? So here's what he does. He wants to justify himself, so he asks, and who is my neighbor? And we know what's happening with this. We know exactly what's happening because we do the exact same thing. Listen to what he says. He says, who is my neighbor? Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to a place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. One of the other renderings of the Gospels says that the Samaritan was on his way somewhere. And I love this truth because he was on his way and he stopped what he was doing. The Levite, the priest, nothing is rendered that says they were on their way anywhere. They were just not going to help, okay? So so he takes pity on this man, and he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? This is Jesus' question when the lawyer tries to justify himself. And the expert in the law replies and says, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, that means have mercy on your neighbor. Your neighbor is your friend. Your friend is a person born for adversity so that you can fight life. Guess what you're supposed to do? Show mercy to people. I hate this message because I don't want to show mercy sometimes. Sometimes I just want to write that person off. Sometimes I just want to push them to the side. Sadly, I just want to be like that expert in the law. As we discovered, friendship is closely connected to being a neighbor. Jesus taught that being a good neighbor requires mercy. So there's step one in friendship and action. It's to be merciful. Why? Because we are products of mercy, church. There's not one person in this room that stands on their own merit. We are a product of mercy. Operating in mercy is actually that first piece of being a good friend. It's loyalty. Uh, It's not necessarily loyalty to the one in need, although it can be, but it is loyalty to the standard by which we live, which is a standard of mercy. We are a merciful people because we are products of it. as products of mercy, we have to display that kindness to anybody and everybody we come in contact with. All too often, though, what we do is we justify ourselves like the lawyer in the story. We want to find a loophole. We seek to justify ourselves uh, uh, by uh, any means necessary. And it might be because because showing mercy to people is an inconvenience. It might be that it is costly. Think about what this Samaritan does. He Takes his money, even money he doesn't have. We're going to see that in a second. And he gives to this man so that he can be made right. This is what it means to have friendship in action. We are going to give, and we're going to give, and we're going to give. Sometimes we try to justify ourselves because we're proud. We think we've got it all figured out. I've got it. I know what it means to be a good Christian. What we need to do is listen to Jesus' stories, and if Jesus says, here's what it really means to love a neighbor, here's who your neighbor is, the one to whom you show mercy, then now I need to change my actions. So uh, I'd also say that if we're trying to justify ourselves with respect to any action or even inaction, which is what we often do, then we're already not good friend material. So that's that's just an observation. Obviously, we see what friendship in action looks like, not from the religious people of the story. We actually see it from the Samaritan. He's the loyal one. He's the loving one. He's the one who has patience or long-suffering. Loyalty in his case, in the Samaritan's case, was doing good and showing mercy. Loyalty to the cause. Loyalty to what he was supposed to do. Love, according to the good Samaritan, was uh, that he treated his neighbor, he treated his friend now, as more important than himself. And long-suffering, the patience issue here, was that he had Patience enough to see his neighbor's good through all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Not just, not just a brief, here's a dollar on a street corner, but let's see these kinds of good things to the end. Now, just a brief note on patience here. How many of you love patience? How many of you, you would love to have it? <laughs> right. Yes, I, I would love to have it. Here's the deal most, <laughs> most of us think of patience as just putting up with annoyance. Right? It's true. That's the thing we want more of, putting up with annoyance, because people are annoying. But here, say this with me. So am I. So am I. Okay, thank you. I just, just, hi, my name's Nathan. I'm annoying. I I need some help. Anyway, so most of us, again, think of patience just as putting up with annoyance. But patience is also persistence in prayer. Did you know that? Patience is also waiting till people see the light of the gospel, however long that takes. Patience is waiting on the front porch for the prodigal to return. Patience is wanting that none should perish, so you repeatedly offer mercy and kindness until they repent. It is not patience when you say, I gave you 10 chances, I'm done. Seventy times seven. Seventy times seven. Wow. In this parable, Jesus is essentially showing us the same friendship in action that Solomon taught centuries before. Proverbs 3, 27 and 28. It'll be on the screen. Do not withhold good from those whom it is due. I just pause there for a second. To whom it is due? Yeah. By the way, good is due. Good is due to all mankind and especially the household of faith. We're going to talk about this in just a second. It is our obligation, not a choice. It is our, I mean, we have a choice. We can choose not to, but it is a command to do good to all people and especially the household of faith. So do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. The brother of Jesus picks this up in James 2, 14 through 16. What use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Do you see what I connected before? What is faith? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not an action that earns you way to heaven. It's an evidence that you actually trust the God you say you do. So James goes on, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? Now, let me put this in a real-world context. If all you do is put on Facebook, praying, what use is that? Here's what, here's what detriment it is. It fills my news feed. Stop it. Right? Here's the use, though. When you say, I'm praying, and then you go and you do something about it. That's just our context, our version of this truth. Okay? So if you're going to pray for people, if you're going to say, be warmed and filled, or I care for you, then care. Care. And do it with the resources that God has given you, because he has abundantly blessed us. These scriptures, these two scriptures here, warn us against the first two characters in the Good Samaritan story. They withheld the good that they knew to do, but not the Samaritan right he was the true friend he was the one who gave all that he had in his power to give even beyond that he promises i shared this just a second ago to come back with more money should uh, what he did give not cover his neighbor's needs this is love this is friendship this is what we're looking for love does not seek its own i harp on this all the time the scripture says to love your neighbor as yourself Show of hands, how many of you love yourselves? Put your dang hands up, right? <laughs> right. Here's the truth. We love we. I love me. And I'm supposed to love my neighbor as much as I love me. I make sure that I shower. I make sure that I'm fed. I make sure that I care for me. So I'm a far cry from loving my neighbor the exact same way. The first two characters avoid the man... That's oh, on the road, but the Samaritan thinks of others again as more important than himself, and this is how we're to respond to the needs of our neighbors, the needs of our friends, the needs of our brothers for adversity, our sisters born for adversity. Another note on Proverbs three twenty seven and twenty eight: We are not to withhold when it is uh, we are not to withhold with, when it is within our power to do so. Um, but what about when it's outside our power? How many of you felt, I want to help somebody, but I have no means? Yeah, that happens at times, okay? It's okay. There will be times when we cannot provide physically, when we cannot provide emotionally. There might be times when we even cannot provide for people spiritually. Uh, but there is a yoke that we need to remember. Remember last week, we talked about this yoke, and we were attached to Jesus, right? We are We are. Uh, in this yoke with our king. But we also share that yoke with others in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters. Uh, So our neighbor, the sample of humanity that's given to us, uh, shows us that even our neighbor's needs are given to us and that when those needs surpass our ability to fulfill, we can call on the body of Christ to help out. See, what we often do is just think we're the only ones who are supposed to do anything. I'm not by myself in this. Amen? You're not by yourself in this. So if you have somebody who's in need and you can't provide, well, let's go to somebody else. Let's ask. We can find more people that can help more people. This is really, really important. So according to Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, our brothers and sisters bear our burdens with us. We are not supermen. We're not super women. We are not living life in a silo of pretend strength. We are not uh, independent of others. We are to rely on each other and to walk through life together. When meeting someone's need is outside our power, we just look to fellow Christians. I look to you. You look to me. We try to help. By the way, in regard to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we really should take note Um, to understand their God-ordained priority, because it is a priority. Galatians 6.10. Look at it on the screen. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. So there's our command. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. The first part uh, parallels Jesus' point with the Good Samaritan. We're to do good to all people, even the guy laying on the road. Uh, anyone who has a need that's our neighbor that's a person we can befriend but let's focus on that second part especially to the household of faith why why do we need to make why do we need to pay special attention to uh, those of the household of faith I was having a conversation with Steph this week and we were talking about the this idea and she provided this perfect illustration for it she talked about um, when you go on an airplane how many of you have Flown, right? You go on an airplane and you have the flight attendant give your uh, emergency instructions, and what do they do? They talk about these oxygen masks, and they say, when the oxygen mask falls, what do you do? You first take care of you. Is that right? You first take care of you so that then you can take care of the other person. Well, this is the point. This is why we especially care for the body of Christ. The crashing plane that seems to be our world right now uh, is it's tanking quick and we have to pay attention first to the members of our own body so that we have the opportunity to save others. That's what we need to do. We need to be concerned about this group. I am concerned about this group because if this group is not cared for, this group can't care. Amen. Amen. If this, if this group is not loved, this group can't love. If this group is not trained, this group can't uh, teach. So, so this is all part of what we're supposed to do. So we're supposed to do good to all people, but especially the household of faith because it's missional. It's something bigger. We need to be reliable friends within the body of Christ. Proverbs 18.24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin especially those who have a pickup truck and they never help you out. Anyway, but, Barney. Anyway, but there, there's a friend. There's a, I had to buy my own pickup truck because he's a jerk. Anyway, but there, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The church needs to be reliable in this idea of friendship first so that we can do good to those outside the world at large. Friendship in action means that although blood may be thicker than water, Although blood may be thicker than water, church, a trusted faithful friend is thicker than all the rest. The scripture tells us that it is a brother, uh, it is a person who sticks closer than a brother, which is a true friend. In the Good, good Samaritan story, we all, uh, all the qualities of a good friend are uh, displayed. Love, loyalty, long-suffering, wisdom, that's knowing how to help, and true righteousness, trusting in King Jesus. We need that. Okay, I'm going to spend the next part of this time, the last, uh, the last 10 or so minutes that I have, talking to you about threats to friendship. And what I have to share with you is not just something that I've learned uh, through reading the Bible. It's something that I've learned in my life. It's something that I've, I've walked out and it has come with pretty deep wounds, right? And so I've got to, I've got to share that if I can help you in any way. Uh, work through this. Proverbs sixteen twenty eight says this, a perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. I want you to say that with me because I want you to realize that this is actually true. And this is true in your friendships, your buddies. It's true in your marriage. It's true in your church relationships. It's true across the board. Listen to what this says. Repeat it with me. A perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates Intimate friends. Intimate friends. This is a hard truth, I think, on two main fronts. First is what it says about those who slander and spread strife. It says that they are perverse people. Uh, That word perverse actually translates fool. So what are they? They're a fool. What are we trying not to be as, as followers of Christ? We're trying not to be fools. We're trying to be wise. We're trying not to be proud. We're trying to be humble. We're giving ourselves to whatever God says to reset that reality. So on, on the one hand, the slanderer, the, the person who spreads strife, is a fool. Second is that their foolishness can and does separate even intimate friends. That is a hard truth to recognize. Most of us believe, I think most of us hope, that our friendships are impervious to slander and strife. The truth is, no relationship is impervious. It can be guarded against, but it's not impervious. Uh, The nature of these tools, slander and strife, the nature of these tools is that they are divisive. And they are effective, church. They are very effective. We can sway people with how we speak. For example, if someone went uh, to Barney and said, Nathan doesn't like you, he's not your friend, Barney would say, it's because I didn't let him use my truck. No, uh, (laughs) if if somebody said, Nathan doesn't like you, he's not your friend, Barney is going to shut that down quickly. Why is he going to shut that down quickly? Because there's too much history in our relationship. This is a stupid idea to believe. This is like believing in a $3 bill, okay? It's just, it's too outlandish. But, and I'm not giving you a strategy. I'm telling Barney right now, uh, subconsciously, to guard against this. But if someone goes to Barney over an extended period of time, smowing, sowing small seeds of doubt, I don't know what smowing is, but anyway, sowing small seeds of doubt um, about, only my bad decisions, which are plentiful, right? Or if they go to Barney and they only talk about the moments I've been less than at my best, which are even more, right? Then, at that point, over time, division can and even will occur necessarily. So we have to guard against it. We have to say, hold on a second, hold on a second, hold on a second. We have to be a people willing to always go back to the source. This is exactly what happened between David and one of his closest friends, Israel. His people, the people he led, the the people he was king over. And it all happened under the watch of his son, Absalom, who was the fool, who was the divisive one. You can read the story in 2 Samuel 15. Over the course of about 40 years, Absalom separated David from the people of Israel. This is another reason why the scripture tells us to avoid the fool, because that's what fools do. The fool, or the perverse person, sows chaos. And all for their own benefit. They're trying to change something, and we don't, we don't always have to know what. How does this sort of thing happen, though? That, this is where we get practice. How, how does this occur? What are the tools that sow discord? Well, let's listen to the words of Jesus' brother James one more time. James 3, 4. Look at the ships also though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder. Track this line. Track this line with me. Wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. There is a person behind all of this. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of life, and it's set on fire by hell." Okay, James, you're going to have to take some Prozac. You're getting a little out of line here, right? No, this is true. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men. Who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, this ought not to be. Strife begins with the tongue. This little annoying thing in your face is what's causing problems. And the tongue speaks from the heart, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But don't miss it. The pilot. Is always in control your heart whatever it's filled with does not have to come out your face you are in control here I can prove it in the negative way for those of you who are Christians for those of you who love your king for those of you who believe what he says and have determined that you want to obey him he has filled your heart with the gospel of Jesus Christ and somehow the pilot keeps being silent Go into all the world and spread the gospel. And we go into all the world and talk about our iPhones. Why? Because we're scared to death. Our hearts are filled with the right thing, but the pilot doesn't want to talk. Well, guess what? The same thing happens in the negative. Same thing happens. You fill your heart with strife. You fill your heart with bitterness. And it can overflow. But you can stop it. You know how you do that? Shut up. I don't know. It's a hard thing to do. <laughs> it's a hard thing to do. So, strife begins with the tongue. The tongue speaks from the heart, but the pilot is always in control. This is why I've said so many times, none of us can, can use the excuse when we say something hurtful, well, I didn't mean to say that. Of course you meant to say it. You should just apologize for saying it. You should just repent and turn around from saying it. Why? Your heart was filled with something bad to say, and you, the pilot, let it fly. Quit blaming everybody else for your issues. Quit avoiding responsibility. When I say hurtful things, I say hurtful things. Sometimes it takes me a while to get it, but it's still on me, right? That's the truth of all of this. We are the pilot. Hurtful things that come out of our mouth, rooted in our heart, and then they are under the control of our will to say or not say. The person who is a slanderer intentionally steers the ship of division with every word they speak. They know that the tongue has the power to tame or tear down, and they choose to use it to tear down. The problem is that we don't have to be a slanderer to slander. This is, the, this is the hard part, guys. James, on one hand, makes it sound, sound inevitable. No one can tame the tongue. But that's not where he leaves it, right? No one can tame the tongue. Ah, but we have King Jesus, don't we? He goes on to say, uh, these things ought not to be this way, and then provides a way out. With slander, we must understand that we can and should bring our words into submission. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. We need to bring it into submission. So the tongue is a fire that needs to be controlled. But how is the tongue controlled? Proverbs ten nineteen: When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who rest- restrains his lips is wise. Translation, shut up more often. Okay, we start taming the tongue by speaking less. Proverbs 18, 2. Fools find no pleasure. You guys do know I'm just toying with you a little bit okay you guys are so serious this morning I don't know I guess I need to start joking about pickup trucks again anyway we start taming the tongue by speaking less next proverb Proverbs eighteen two. fools find no pleasure in understanding but delight in airing their own opinions <laughs> that's like the bumper sticker of 2020 isn't it fools delight in airing their own opinions That's all we ever hear we continue to tame the tongue by withholding our opinion until we actually have all the facts. This seem, and even then, we still show mercy. This seems challenging today, and it requires a lot more patience, and we need to, uh, we need to apply that. First Timothy 5.19 says this. It's a practical application for you. It says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. You want to know one of the reasons why the church deals with such division? Because one person got mad at one thing one guy said one time and went and gossiped to every other person in the world and blew the world up. That's what happens, and it happens a lot. Instead of having a grown-up attitude, instead of coming to a person and talking to them, slander, slander. Did you hear what he said? I can't even believe that. That's so stupid. He doesn't think this through. She doesn't think that through. Guess what happens after time? People hate you. I've lived it. But you got to talk it out. You actually have to do the work of being merciful. You have to be humble enough to admit maybe you were wrong. Maybe you misheard. These are hard things. I I don't like it any more than you guys. I'm squirming here too. Whether we know it or not, our opinion matters to someone. And if we are inaccurate in our opinions, we will cause division. So the tongue is the instrument. What's the motivation? James 3, 13 through 18. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. True biblical wisdom is always gentle, church. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, demonic. There's fun. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first, listen church, pure, Then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are not the divisive people. They are fools. They have a problem and God will deal with that particular thing. James is showing us that strife begins from the heart uh, from the heart, and from hearts of those who harbor jealousy and selfish ambition. To protect our friendships from slander, we have to be on the lookout for all of that. Are you jealous of someone? Are, do you have selfish ambition? Are you just bitter? Watch it in your heart because what then comes out of your mouth is going to allow that poison that's in you to overflow into that relationship and it's going to create a problem. Another telltale sign of danger is the the sign of disorder. I heard a comment this week that I wanted to share with you. I, I love this. Proverbs 18, 17 says this. It says, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. How many of you know that that's true? People offer their case, and then what do we, what do, we do? We fact check it, <laughs> right? We got a case, we cross-examine it, and we find out it's total nonsense. So, so we adjust for that. We have to do that in everything. But here's, here's the comment that caught my attention. Be careful what you hear about somebody. You might be hearing it from the problem. <laughs> I love that idea. You might be hearing the problem from the problem, which means it's not a problem. You're hearing an idiot, and, that, and that's the issue. In being on the lookout for disorder, we're actually able to tell whether or not a person is the problem or not. So we have bitterness, jealousy, and disorder. All of these are motivators for slander. But what is the opposite? James says that it's a peaceable nature of wisdom. Here's how you can know you have a brother, you have a friend that really wants your betterment because they are peacefully, peacefully, trying to steer you in the right direction. They are not berating you. They're not bludgeoning you with their words. Amen? This is the point. Kindness leads to repentance. Amen, church? Yeah, but what do we do? We think a ball bat called our tongue is what leads people to repentance. No, it just makes you have less friends. Trust me, trust me. James 4, 11 through 12. Do not speak against one another, brethren. Did you hear that? Do not speak against one another, brethren. Do not. Like, period. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. You're about to see why this is so dangerous. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge. So what are you doing when you are speaking against another person? You're playing God. There's only one lawgiver, there's only one judge, and you ain't it. The one who is able to save and to destroy, but one who one <clears throat> but who are you who judge your neighbor? Who are you who judge your neighbor? Wow, that is hard. And of course we know what judgment is here. It is condemnation. Being peaceable means refraining from speaking against one another. We struggle with this in the church. It happens so often, especially when the person being spoken against is not present. You know how easy it is to talk about people when they're not around? <laughs> Imagine that. Okay, I know, but, but <laughs> here's the difference. I talk to him straight to his face. Anyway, okay, so there's a definition of gossip that I've always lived by, and I I love this definition. Gossip is when you are talking about someone to a person who is neither part of the problem nor the solution. You have no business talking to them. They're not a part of the problem. They're not a part of the solution. And that talking is berating somebody, it's slandering somebody, and it's not helping. Listen, even if you're someone's confidant... If you're not helping, stop the conversation. If you're not helping, see your way out of it. Because it's not helpful. It's not getting anywhere. Gossip seems to just gather people uh, to a particular side. But that's not what we're about. We're trying to be a people who are impartial. Gossip is a form of slander. It separates close friends as well. Last scripture for you, Galatia, or James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Therefore be patient, brethren. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Do you see what just got contrasted there? How God handles a thing? and how we, too, should handle a thing. You, too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, because the truth is we are weak. For the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Here's here's what we need to understand. God is kind, and his kindness leads to repentance. Amen? God is also patient. What does that mean? He, he's long-suffering and he wants that none should perish. Isn't that an amazing truth? He wants that none of us and none of the world should perish. So what God does is he allows that ground, that soil that is a human heart, he allows it to be tilled up. Sometimes we play that part in people's lives. We work the ground. We till it up, okay? Sometimes we're tilling the ground. Sometimes we're planting. How many of you know that? The scripture is expressly clear on this. Some plant, some water, but what? But God causes the increase. And so here's the deal. We have human hearts. That is the, that's the soil. It needs to be tilled up. Seeds need to be planted. We need to water it because sometimes it feels like the rain is not coming away. It should at times. That's one of our responsibilities. But God says this. He causes the increase. How does he cause the increase? He causes it by the late and the early rains, according to James. The early and the late rains. What in the world is this idea about? God is working. God has this thing planned. And his kindness and his patience is still looking at it going, I still haven't sent the late rain. I've got this. That person's not what you think they are. They're not a lost cause. Give me time. He really doesn't care if you give him time. He wins. But the point is, he's wanting you to be patient. And so here's, here's what James says. God is this God. And then he says, you too should be patient like him. You see, when we're dealing with the world, when we're dealing with our neighbor, our friend, those born as brothers and sisters for adversity, and they go wrong, they they struggle, they sin, they fall short, what we need to do is stop judging and condemning and start being patient with them. Why? God still hasn't sent the late rain. But we're convinced, we're convinced We've done it. We've got the gavel. We stole it from King Jesus. We're dropping it on everybody. And as I've shared with you before, it's a good thing I'm not there. I condemn everybody to hell on Monday and regret it on Tuesday. God is patient. God, I am so glad he's patient because I should have gone to hell a billion times over, church. But he loves me. He's patient with me. He crushes me and breaks me And then he builds me up because he's good. Because faithful are the wounds of a friend, and there is no greater friend than the one who laid down his life for us. He will faithfully wound us, church. The beauty is, the late rain is still coming. That's true of your neighbor, that's true of your friend. It doesn't mean everybody's gonna be saved. It just means be patient. It means take a deep breath. Your, your uh, friend is not a lost cause. <laughs> your spouse, not a lost cause. Your friend's friends, not a lost cause, <laughs> right? I hear this a lot. This friend says to that friend, that friend is awful. You should leave them, <laughs> right? A friend loves always. We should be patient. So guys, there's a lot that the Proverbs say about friendship. And it is, it's life-changing if we'll, we'll employ it. Um, but employing it is hard. Because it requires us to be good friends. And we have to submit to Jesus for that. I'm trying every day of my life to figure that out. I'm grateful for patient people in my life. I want to be the patient person, though. Amen? This is all important for us. So we're going to take communion, uh, and as we take communion, I want you to remember uh, again and again and again and again that this represents um, the wounding of a faithful friend so that we might have life. Right? Jesus was wounded. He was crushed for our iniquity. For our sins so that we might have life and life abundantly. In light of that, we can be patient with those around us, can't we?